Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. But first, I want to give a shout out to our new Patreon supporters. So shout out to Ben Skifton, Maggie Dietz, and Joe Kiros. Joe, I don't know if that's how you pronounce your last name. I know we met at the conference, so sorry if I butchered it. And as long as we're talking about Patreon, you can support us at patreon.com slash liturgy. And for those of you who are Patreon supporters... You are about to get a big surprise. So check the Patreon page. And if you're not a Patreon supporter, you should become one because there's going to be an amazing benefit for you. Also, if we get to $500 a month support on Patreon, I literally will write a rap song about the liturgy guys and the liturgy. And if we get to $1,000 a month in support, I will make a music video and I will force Dennis and Chris to be in it for said rap song. So those are your incentives to get on Patreon. A secret, awesome, super surprise and getting to hear me rap or seeing me rap with Dennis and Chris. So this week we are talking about an allocution from John the 23rd to those who are attending a music conference in Rome. And it's kind of uh, similar to JP2's letter to artists, but it's just kind of talking a little bit about that. Really an amazing conversation with Dennis and Chris. So without further ado, Episode 2 of Season 3 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. All right, we're talking about, I'm going to get this right this time, John the 23rd, not John Paul. John Paul the 23rd. John Paul the 23rd. This is an elocution from the future when the next uh, 22 oh, John well, Paul's coming. All right, what's an elocution again? It's just a uh, talking to, just the word al ah to locution. So if I want to punish Agnes, I'll be like, if you don't sit still, you're going to you get an elocution. Yeah, you gave me an elocution <laughs> on the ride up here today. <laughs> Yeah, so, you know, popes have different levels of authority, and some of them are definitive, and they're teaching authority, they have magisterial authority. Sometimes they just get asked to come say hi to people. So this was on the occasion of um, a musical study week in 1961. So there are a bunch of church musicians and scholars of music were there having a study week in Rome, and oh, the pope will come by and say hi. So he came and gave them a few words of encouragement and what he thought they ought to, um, to think about. I mean, did I say musicians? Uh, I thought this I thought was so. artists. Artists, yeah. Well, yeah. musicians are artists, but this is more visual artists and architects that he was talking to. Sorry, I take that all back. Okay. He did speak to musicians too, but this one. But it about probably, artists. like some of these things, can pertain to multiple different fields, but. Right. In this case, it was sacred art. See, look right on the top. It says sacred. But it's important to know the specific art. audience. Well, yeah that's, yeah, that's what he's talking about sacred art and architecture. So, it, you know, it has a breezy kind of quality. Um, he starts out by saying, beloved sons, welcome to this distinguished assembly of scholars and experts, right? It's just the usual fluff. Um, but then he says, uh, this brings consolation to our soul. And, you know, the Pope always spoke in first person plural back then. It was the royal we, as they would say. Oh, okay. So yeah. instead of my soul. And what he says is, we like to look upon you as valuable aids in the educational and sanctifying mission of the church. So, Chris, I know you're the king of Munara. 
which is not a country in Europe that what we don't know. What is Munera? Tell us about Munera. Jesse wants to know about Munera. Munera, those, it means uh, office or works. It's from uh, Munus. I was going to say Munus. it was the currency on the moon. But I think, no. I, I think the English municipal uh, comes Munificent, from yeah. So the three offices okay. are usually associated with priest, prophet, and king. Right? That's These right. Are the baptismal those, are, those are called it as Munera Christi. The works of Christ or offices of Christ. Right. So one of the missions of every bishop is the sanctification of the people in his diocese. And so when the Pope says, hey, you are valuable aids in the educational mission, that's kind of the prophet part. And then the sanctifying mission, I guess, is the priest part. So to say that artists aren't just people who paint, paint pretty pictures that we happen to like and you know hang over the toilet in the bathroom so it's not <laughs> empty. It's like, no, at the high level, they have a job, which is to educate and sanctify, which is the mission of the church. And so uh, John Twenty-Third is one of these people who's very interested, as the popes were at that time, they thought there was this division between art and the church, and there was, because the art world, for the most part, was going off the cliff. And the Mo- church was... Modernism and all well, that. Modernism and Culture generally, right? Part right. of uh, the, the council's mission was to was it, open the windows and engage the, the modern right, world. Right, to let the church out of the windows so that we it could just sanctify let, the world. We just let the, church, the podcast out of these windows. Yes, we're breathing fresh... Dairy. Madison and Dairy, dairy Air. Yeah, there you go. I know. That is, I love that's that. a cheap shot. There, I love right. that joke. I know. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Pius would was lamenting how the artists and musicians, remember the Musique Sacre uh, podcast we did last season, he was lamenting that they're doing all these things that are free expression, that are, you know, offensive to the Christian sensibility. Well, John Twenty-Third comes around and he doesn't quite deny that, but he says, artists, I want you to serve the church. Instead of stop offending the church, he says, how can we be friends and let me teach you? So that's basically what How he wants to do. can we be friends? <laughs> Why can't we be oh. friends? I can think of any number of reasons, Chris. But, Whoa. Um, but what does he say to the artist? It's your aim and desire to make her ministry appear in forms of harmonious beauty and to make it touch the hearts of men today through the teaching offices of art. So that's a pretty good mission. So I don't know. What would you tell your artist? You're, you're in the building committee and the artist comes in and says... Father or Chris or your who are you again? Uh, Jesse. Jesse, what would you tell him? We're gonna we need art. This is, these are the principles I want you to follow. What would you say? I would say what what um, purpose does this art serve? What other things are around it? What's the goal for this art? So, for example, they renovated the John Paul II Chapel on at Mundelein Seminary, and there was an intention of. Um, what saints were going to be portrayed in the stained glass windows, windows, and and it was going to be saints that were beatified or canonized by John Paul II to some degree or some... So it wasn't just the expression of the artist in whatever mood they were in. You know, there's this lady whose name, fortunately, I can't remember because now I can't use it. Was it uh, Deborah? uh, Yeah, it was Deborah. All right. No, it wasn't. But anyway, she does this abstract art and this like blue background and like yellow and gold streaks of light are through it. And she wrote this essay to go with her art and she's like well you know when art needed to look like something back in the days when people couldn't read so now that we can all read we can make abstract art that's just about our feelings i was like no that is 100 percent wrong 100 percent wrong you want art to lift up your feelings but he says educating and sanctifying mission not just evoking any old response that is like decoration in a room so art has a high uh, goal here in fact he says uh, one of the headings here is almost sacramental in character art Whoa, that's a pretty no. high standard. Yeah. Now, the, sacramental is a tough word because it can be an adjective or it can be a noun, right? A sacramental, like you're wearing your holy medals or uh, scapular, 
is a thing that forms your disposition to receive grace. But when you use it as an adjective, it means it acts like a sacrament. It, it renders something present into the room uh, that you're in, or at least parallels that. So you always, we are, I've argued about this over the years, Chris, whether, or, or whether icons are sacraments, as the Eastern Church calls it, which are actually rendering something of God present to you, or are they just reminders that God is up there somewhere and mm-hmm. is making us more disposed? So I Do think we the, argue about this. We both well, think it's the ago. former, don't we? You've well, come the, around, I the, think. No, you thought you thought it was the latter. Do we? The, the do good we have Thomas. an iconic clash right now? Oh, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, what John the Twenty Third says, uh, it, it's he said not, of course, in the strict sense of the term, as art a sacrament as a vehicle and instrument which the Lord uses to dispose souls for the wonders of grace. So that's more of a sacramental than a sacrament. I'm well, sorry, but when you say a... you want to dispose souls, that sounds... <laughs> Not dispose of them. Oh. Put them in the proper disposition. Got so. it. Yeah. No, no, the, the, the art and the sculpture and windows and things like that, they, they have this sacramental quality about them that in some way the reality which is heaven or Jesus or God or grace is made sensible. Yeah, so they're, what did he say, sort of like, or quasi, or uh, sacraments. So they, he just says almost, yeah. Almost, yeah. They're, they, they function like sacraments do. Not in the same way, but uh, uh, in a related way, certainly. In the letter to artist, John Paul II said, by way of analogy, icons can be compared to sacraments. So they're like, but dislike. Um, they have a similar thing. But what John Twenty-Third says, spiritual values become, in a sense, visible. So spiritual values, meaning untouchable concepts, ideas of spiritual importance, become knowable to the eyes and they come closer to the human mentality that wants to see and touch. So take kids to church. How do you get them to encounter spiritual values that are abstract? Well, ooh, pretty window, Daddy. At, uh, at St. Mary's Church in uh, where, where, where we go sometimes, so there's a statue of Mary and she's stepping on a serpent and it's, uh, the snake has its mouth wide open. And my kids notice that and they remember that and they talk about that. And so this is a, an otherwise unseen um, truth of our faith that is now visible to them and now is being digested by them and they're being formed by it. So, yeah, absolutely that's how it works. So it does have a didactic or educational purpose at the lower level. But when you get to the high level of theology, it's ac- the, the way the Easterners think of it is it actually renders present in the room something of what a divinized person might look like. You get to encounter the things that you can encounter, which is your own heavenly future, by way of anticipation through the medium of art. So that's the high theology. Yeah, the uh, might want to do a podcast on this. Uh, I was reading Gardini's Chapter Five of the Spirit of Liturgy on uh, liturgy as play, and he's talking about art. Seeing what he will say, kind of as a sort of as a said contra to this, is that art doesn't do anything. It doesn't have purpose, and it doesn't educate. And you shouldn't be looking at it to get anything out of it. Boo. Well, no, on, on one level, this is true. What it does is. Um, it, uh, uh, it creates a, uh, a place, is what, how he says it, uh, where the soul can uh, attain the, the, the life of its nature. It, it makes it come to life. So it's not teaching a catechism lesson, yeah. but it's engaging and it's actualizing the yeah. soul's uh, potentialities to become alive with God. It still teaches, but you wouldn't want to turn your church into an art history museum. Oh, here's this from this period, this period, this period, right? It has to be primarily a theological revelation first. He, yeah, first. And then it will also be educational as well, just like the liturgy, right? You, you don't go to Mass to learn about the history of liturgy, but you do learn the history of liturgy by praying yeah, Mass. Yeah, but you go to Mass to become fully alive. Right. And that's what uh, the, what Gardini is saying about art. It doesn't just simply teach lessons. It, it makes you come to life. And that's, that's not uh, um, 
kind of a subservient utilitarian goal to something else, that's it. But it's important. It's important to to distinguish that because I think um, when you try to simplify it too much, then you kind of lose how um, diverse the intention of art can be. I mean, not just educational, not just revealing truth, but it does a lot of things in a lot of different ways. It calls us back to the liturgical jacuzzi from I think season one. Yes, that's that was that. You said I'm going to sit in a jacuzzi so I can know what 182.3 degree water feels like and it's a scientific study of water and bubbles then you've missed the point of just relaxing and enjoying the jacuzzi right but if you do relax and enjoy the jacuzzi then you do learn what hot water feels like and bubbles and all that stuff so that's the low level image you know john the 23rd gives this kind of nice little story about his childhood and the church he grew up in and it's funny when he speaks in first uh person he says, this brings to mind the course of our life. And you're like, whose life? All of us? And then he's like, as a oh, matter of fact, wait, the Lord granted is... us the privilege of being baptized in a country church built in the 1400s. That is so weird. It's like, <laughs> I wasn't baptized in a <laughs> church from the 1400s. And then you realize, oh, it's that royal plural we. So, uh, And he says, just as minstrels sowed poetry, not sowed with needle and thread, but like sowed seeds. So minstrels would be these people who wander around and they would sing poetic songs or sing ballads or odes in the history of the place. They sowed odes? They sowed odes, poetry. These men sowed beautiful pictures of Our Lady and the Saints. In other words, if you walked through a, a garden or a farm, someone would have sowed all those seeds and you would walk through this kind of beautiful flower garden. So it is with images of saints and, and the words of, of poetry. I like that. Yeah. And so he talks about the different things that art should do, but he calls it a visible and effective. Now, these are precise words, Chris. I know you're a precise word guy. Visible and effective symbol of the mystery of una sancta catholica et apostolica ecclesia. What the heck does that mean? What was well, the first part? Effective. Visible, With an e, right? Visible <laughs> and effective. Yeah, not affective like m- emotions, but effective. It has an effect. Symbol of the mystery of una sounds, sancta catholica. Sounds like a sacrament again, isn't it? <laughs> That's right. It's a, it's a visible sign of an invisible sacrament of a one holy Catholic church. It an apostolic it church, right. Yeah. So you have a church, which is all of us, all around the world, headed in its hierarchical structure. You can't see it most of the time. Most of the time, you're in your own house, and maybe you see some of your neighbors, and then on Sunday, maybe you see more people, and then maybe you go to Rome every so often, but not everybody in China is there. But if you fill a church full of images of all the saints through time, then you have this effective too, which is... Interesting. It's effective on you. Something about you changes by encountering all these things. I would argue. I would argue that a lot of what we talk about on the podcast should be effective. I mean, liturgically, is that there's something happening. There should be a result of everything. That's exactly the term that uh, theologians use about sacraments: is their efficacy, is Mm -hmm. how they work on you. Well, I'm a theologian, so you, 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 armchair (laughs) theologian. But no, I I think probably this. I think David Fagerberg. I've heard say this is too often. We're looking for affective. Uh, litur- liturgical experiences rather than effective liturgical right. experiences. We want something that gives us a feeling, oh, I walk in this church and there's light across ma- the surface. It makes me feel X, oh. Y, or Z. Okay, and then after that, crickets, right? Mm-hmm. Le Corbusier was the famous modernist of the mid-20th century who designed a number of the famous modernist churches. He said, I'm not a religious man. I don't really know anything about religion, but I do know when I see light across a surface that something of the unknowable mystery of God is, is made known to me. And that's all he could do. He had no sacramental system. It was just, oh, light across a, a surface means that somehow some mysterious Something light source somehow. that I don't know what it, he says. It's, he called it almost religious. And um, that's not what we're talking about here. 
I mean, that's a start, right? If, if you go into a church and you see light across the surface and it's cool, then that's great. But what John Twenty-Third, the great Pope, you know, opened Vatican II, says, this is many ways of trying to bring the visible closer to the invisible, the sensible to the supernatural. So, but we're talking about light through a surface, almost like a stained glass window. So it's even more penetrating than just... Well, stained glass is the only yeah, one, yeah, where yeah. light goes through a surface, or I suppose... Some churches have marble panels in the window, or they're really thin, that light comes through it, but, mm-hmm. or alabaster, it's not, uh, not too common. But the point is, he's saying, this earthly stuff can be rendered closer to revelatory reality, or being revelatory of the sacred realities. The natural can become the supernatural, and the temporal can become eternal. So, art is very much like sacraments that way. How, this is how you would talk about the Eucharist, right? The stuff of the earth, this bread, nonetheless becomes the sacrament of the eternal feeding of all of, all of us for eternity. And art shares in some way, in a lesser way, uh, that kind of mission as well. And he, you know, he goes on, he quotes... He says, our predecessor, Adrian I, wrote in 787, which is great. Oh, That's yeah. a good Catholic. Oh, Adrian I. That's a good Catholic way of thinking. He's quoting from somebody in 1960 from, you know, how many years uh, earlier, 1,200 years almost. Wherever you find Christianity, there will always be sacred images that are honored so that through a visible likeness, the soul may be lifted up in heavenly affection to the invisible divine majesty. He is the uh, uh, image of the invisible God. Exactly, right? God became man, human, so mm-hmm. that humans might become God. So he's basically saying, when you see this earthly stuff, nonetheless, you're carried up into those uh, heavenly visions. So he says, pretty much uh, straight out, what we mean to say is the church is aiming as nothing more than the carrying out of its mission of elevating and sanctifying man. Boom. It's so simple in some ways, right? Does every choice And also he said this like a long time ago, so we it's still, we still need anymore. to hear it. Oh, yeah, right. No, exactly. And he does, <laughs> let's see if you can decode this. Because sometimes you read a little allocution, like, oh, yeah, it's just John the Twenty Third playing nice with the visitors and doing a little speech, right? But what does he say? Just as the angels are messengers of God and present to him, so too Christian art, ready for this? Are you ready for this? Uh, yeah. Okay. Dun, Y'all dun, ready dun, for this? Dun, 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 Christian art lifts itself up beyond the veil of the sensible to join God and go along with his holy inspiration and orient our relationship with him. When you hear lifted beyond the veil, what do you what could come to mind right uh, now? I, I, I think the veil that separated the um in the, that was separating the temple that was torn that we now have access to through the redemptive well, suffering of Christ. Yeah, letter to the Hebrews speaks about going beyond, beyond or about beyond the veil. Right. So imagine the temple building being much like a church, and imagine if the sanctuary had a big veil across it, like a big curtain, like a like a theater. And only the high priest would go beyond that veil. And all the holy things would happen on the other side. That was the image of heaven. And you were outside the curtain. So, I mean, imagine if you went to a play and the play happened behind the curtain. That, that wouldn't be so great, you know? And then you say, oh. Well, some plays I've been to. So, hey, you know, director, can you go behind the curtain and, you know, tell them what we want and then bring us back whatever they say? Like, that's a very minimal participation in the realities. But what Christ does at his death, as you said, Jesse, is the veil tears. And so you have access visibly to heaven. Which is okay, because it was kind of terrible. Terrible, (laughs) yes. Uh, So what he's saying is the job of art is to take us beyond the veil. So you basically get carried by the artist into the other side of the heavenly realities by them painting images of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, angels, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new heaven, the new earth. How else would you visually encounter those things? You know, unless you're a mystic, and most people aren't, you have to encounter them somehow. And so the artist's job is to either bring them to you or bring you to them. It's the same idea beyond the veil. So what he tells them, you know, at the end is, 
your work is an arduous and delicate one, which is really true. You can't just burst in like a bull in a china shop and say, I'm going to paint whatever I want. Or I've studied, you know, anatomy so well that I'm going to paint the perfect, you know, muscular structure. Well, that's not really the point. The point is you're showing what a saint and the heavenly reality might be like once they're transfigured by divine grace. So he says, in a word, all that will attract the man of today, stir up his cultural interests and make use of his talents and inclinations. That's what he wants artists to do. He's kind of arguing that humanity in 1960 is not quite a bunch of peasant farmers, but culture becomes really important. And so that these churchmen and artists should be working together. And he says, this is why we teach art and the principles of sacred art in seminaries, which as far as I know, uh, doesn't really happen. <laughs> but it did say so in Vatican too. Seminaries should be taught the history of art and uh, discernment. So he kind of winds it up this way. Uh, Catholic tradition has always enjoyed a wise and healthy modernity, right? Because he's really in the height of the modern period. Um, but so he wants to restore the marriage. Healthy modernity though. Right. Not yeah. just taking modernity as it is, but to understand what does it, what do people need in their time and place. Uh, he wants to restore, he says, the marriage between theology and the world of imagery that has taken place in the great artistic periods of all time. So in other words, we have theology, you have art. Can these things be married? In other words, don't just be an artist outside of theology. We won't just hide here in our little bunker, bunker of theology and have no art. But he wanted these two uh, together. So he said, this offers your minds and abilities new incentives for a constructive search after the good and the beautiful. So, you know, how many artists know this today? What's the job of an artist? Or to paint a picture that looks old-fashioned? That's kind of what a lot of people think today. It looks old-timey or it looks traditional, holy card. Well, that's not really enough. Does it lift the mind beyond the veil to the heavenly things and bring the heavenly things to us? So, John the Twenty-Third, the great modern Pope of 1960. J23, the J23. Michael Jordan of Popes. Had some good ideas there, and that is our little introduction to John the Twenty-Third. And now we will begin this podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was the introduction. Not less. <laughs> that was great. Questions? Anyone? Anyone? I have a question. Yes. Do is there any um, evidence in your opinion or uh, that any of this may actually made an impact? No. I, I mean, I'm not assuming that it did. I'm just, no, I just. No. I wonder how these things, these allocutions, or these general assemblies that popes have, uh, how how efficacious are they? Uh, they're efficacious about 60 years later when people like us talk about them uh, pretty much. You know, if you look at the art that was coming even out of the Vatican studios at that period, it was quite abstract, yeah. uh, quite um, broken where, where looking. He does, where the Pope does the general audience, there's that weird... Yeah, that was right out of the Vatican art studios. It looks the, really weird. The big sort of uh, bronze yeah. uh, invasion of the body snatchers kind of art. Yeah. And oh, that's because God. they were listening to the artists who were coming up with art theories that were contrary to the uh, Catholic theology, at least in my opinion. But at the time, the idea to dialogue with the world was so strong that the world kind of blew some stuff in that maybe shouldn't have been there, at least in sure. my not-so-humble opinion. Chris, do you have any questions? Mm -mm. Great. Really? I didn't want you to have any. Uh, that's, that's awesome. I, I love hearing this stuff because I, I'm kind of uh, new to a lot of this, relatively speaking, um, all of this amazing liturgical information. And to know that the ball was already rolling, you know, during the the liturgical movement, but then certainly during some of these these popes understood these these challenges that were facing them with uh, you know upcoming modernism in terms of art. But then you you hear 
this this happens in other areas of theology too with um, humana vitae and talking about if we go down this road this is what will happen mm-hmm. and you know and sometimes we listen a lot of times we don't right. as a culture but we can look back and say wow this was important this was uh, we're revealed. open to new development but it has to be along the right. lines of how god wants himself to be revealed to the church and it's not so much like do the narrow thing that the old white men in the vatican tell us it's god has disclosed himself the guardian of that disclosure is the church the church wants to make sure that disclosure continues and it continues in a proper way without error without distortion and so yeah, freedom, new expression for our time and place, but you can't sneak in little lies just because you want to be true to your time. And so you can read on the 23rd that way saying, all right, artists, we need you back. Art has a great mm-hmm. thing, but you have to stay with the mind of the church. And if you read his opening address on uh, October 11th, 1962 at the council, he says those two points precisely. That's the whole point of the council is to take the church's theological patrimony and have it accessible and engage with uh, the world in which we live. And so that's the whole council is about. Right. He's, that's kind of a microcosm right there, which you're describing. Just like the podcast we did on the different options for singing at Mass. Mm-hmm. Hey, the whole world, we have these great musical traditions, and we want you to know them too. Stop just singing saccharine, sweet, old-fashioned hymns and start singing the texts of the Mass. We mm-hmm. want you to do this. We're going to give you lots of options. Very similar this way, but it starts with the mind of the church and stays there. And then there's a great freedom. You can do anything you want as long as you're in the... If you're in the pen, right, the mm-hmm. pig pen, the pigs can run around and play. Once they're out of the pen, they can't. They have to be careful for wolves and that kind of stuff. So stay with the mind of the church, and then you have total freedom. All right. I like pig pens. <laughs> All right, we're done. Pigsty, Pigpen. Well, is a, is Pigpen one of the Charlie Brown characters? Yeah, he's the, he was the guy with the sm- with cloud the of smell cloud dirty, around. Dirty him. smoke over here. I have a smell cloud around me. It's okay. I understand it. So you guys know that we love the Liturgical Institute and we love everything that we do here. But you know who else loves the Liturgical Institute? Yeah, Bishop Robert Barron. And guess what he has to say about it. Well, I've known the Liturgical Institute from the very beginning. I was at Mundelein on the faculty in 2000 when it started. I knew Monsignor Mannion very well, who was the founder. Uh, Dr. McNamara, who was with him from the beginning, I've known. We've become good friends. I've spoken many times there. I've known all the faculty members. I've known many of the students. So I, I know from the ground up what the, um, the LI does. And they introduce people into the beauty of the church's intellectual tradition and liturgical tradition. And um, I don't know in the country a better place to go to get immersed precisely in that aesthetic dimension and the intellectual than the LI. So, you know, I'm a big fan. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? Hey guys, we have another liturgy question. Do you want to take care of this? Favorite kind of question. Uh, The question comes from... That and would you like cherry pie? Yes. That's my other favorite question. Oh, do you like cherry pie? Wouldn't the question be, do you want cherry pie? Rather than just merely... Would you you like is what I was... Not do you like. Oh, okay. Got it. Anyway, what's the question, Jesse? Okay, this question comes from Father Dennis. No relation to you. Two ends or one? Um, Two ends, actually. Well, then the wrong... Father says, why do many of the colics speak of they as though present company during the Mass are excluded as opposed to we? And then he says, thank you. You're welcome, Father Dennis. Thank you. Dennis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we, uh, well, I have a collect right here. 
Shall I read it? You shall. Okay. This is from the 18th eighteenth <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> from the 18th, 18th century. century in ordinary times. <laughs> probably older than that, actually. Draw near to your servants, O Lord, and answer their prayers with unceasing kindness, for that for those who glory in you as their creator and guide, you may restore what you have created and keep safe what you have restored through our Lord Jesus Christ, etc. So there's a couple of they references in there. So first of all, what's a collect, Chris? That's a good word. It's a great word. Yeah. What, is it, what, is it, what do you do when you collect things? Yeah, I think the dynamic is uh, the priest says, let us pray. And then the 250 people who are in the nave, each one starts to pray and brings forward sentiments of love, adoration, forgiveness, sorrow, petition, whatever. And then the priest collects them. He gathers them all together. And in the person of Christ, the head, he, in a single voice, he hands them over. He speaks them in a single voice over to God the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so when does the collect typically happen? It's right oh, it's before the, the first reading, right? Right. It's the last part at the end of the introductory rites. So you've prayed a bunch of stuff, right? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, maybe a Kyrie, maybe a Gloria. You've presented a lot of your desires lord have mercy and then the glorification of god and whatever desires you have you have then kind of warmed up and the priest being the head of that body then collects them and offers them to the father as christ would do this is what the high priest did too in the temple he took the prayers and petitions of israel into the presence of god so christ does that for us so why the they and not the we curse i think the answer is that uh the priest is talking to God the Father about us. Yes. About the they. But my we can too. hear him. <laughs> right. If I said, Father, my leg hurts and my hand is broken, please heal them. Right. right. I'm, I'm talking about the members <laughs> yeah. of my body. Heal us. Yeah, the please royalty. heal us. So he's saying all these prayers and petitions, the head has gathered them up and he's praying for them, sort of in the, in the person of Christ. That's my intuitive guess. Yeah. Uh, I hate to go all Jesse on this and derail. Uh, you know, but otherwise do it. Like, oh, oh. Uh, so I just sort of opened the missile at random to a comment. <laughs> this is what it says. Uh, hang on. This is Monday of the second week of Advent. May our prayer of petition rise before you. We pray, O Lord, that with purity unblemished, we, your servants, may come as we desire to celebrate the great mystery, etc. So in this one, Dennis, uh, we've gone from they to we. So what do you make of that? I would probably ask someone, when did that collect get written? Was it after the council? Was it before the council? Did it come from a certain ritual family? Is there a reason why that first person plural is used? Yeah, it seems like in the, uh, in the first one, the priest is speaking about the people and he's not considering himself as a part of that group. In this one, he's talking about me, the priest, and your people. Together, we're a we versus a me and a they. Is it possible... That it could be an either-or type of relationship. The priest can be speaking to God on our behalf. It, and it's not a matter of what the collect is at its core, but just a matter of which prayer he's saying at that point. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it's always addressed to the Father. Sometimes uh, a collect is addressed to the Son, most of the time to the Father. I think the difference, though, is that whether the priest is considering his well, you, own... Yeah, whether he's praying on behalf of somebody or with. Or with them, yeah. It looks like the missile does both. All right. So strangely it, enough... But, but, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to admit that, you know, as we rant... We don't really rant here, do we? But as we no. talk about people... Need rave, to, people need to be rave. paying attention to what's going on, and I've never even noticed this. <laughs> at all but i will um moving forward I, you know what what 
person is being is that right which which person is being used we pronoun they, pronoun anyway well true yeah and I, I suppose one emphasizes the bodiness of the body and one emphasizes the head of the body doing something for the other the, the word by itself uh, itself comes from a latin word which means to gather so there's gathering up the prayers it was actually called in the uh, previous translation the opening prayer in the old in the 1973 missal when it actually wasn't the opening prayer because it was the prayer that ended <laughs> the uh the beginning um so in any case, they usually have five parts. It's kind of interesting. You know, one of the things about the Roman Rite is it's very um, succinct, and it has certain tasks to do, and it gets them done quickly. So, invocation of God's name, an acknowledgement of His attribute, a petition for something, and then a hope for the desired result, and then a pleading in the name of Jesus Christ at the end. Boom, 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 boom. So you see that in these things, these requests: draw near, enter our prayers, that you can restore what you've created. Thank you. We love you. Amen. What is, what is this? Which collect in here has the day? That was uh, late 18th, 18th Sunday of ordinary time. Okay. Because, I mean, it, it could be just the nature of the language of the prayer and that some collects reference the people who are in the building at that time and some collects reference... Because the, in the liturgy, you he'll like, ask this saint to intercede and ask them and they. And, and right. sometimes and it's usually it, from a particular right. feast day. And sometimes it goes beyond... The, the building, so to speak. So maybe that has something to do with it. Either way, Father Dennis, I hope this sheds a little light onto your question. And if you have a question for us, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com or tweet us at liturgyguys. Thank you. And God bless. And God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.